Hello, and welcome to the Robert Kane podcast, which I guess I'm still calling Desiderata just because it's kind of a cool name. Um, but I decided that for from now on, I'm going to not focus explicitly on philosophy or stoicism um, per se, because I just feel like I kind of covered everything I wanted to say about that topic on the what I'm calling the first season of Desiderata. Um, it's not really a season, it's mostly just me rambling about philosophy for a couple episodes. So if you're really interested in stoicism, probably will come up again in the course of talking about other other things. But um, if you're interested in talking about that specifically or hearing about my thoughts on that or references to things that I've read, you can check out the first season of these episodes and you will get all the information you desire there. That being said, uh, what am I going to cover in the future? Well, I think, you know, the problem with any podcast is you have to have a, a subject. Uh, there has to be some kind of topic that you're trying to cover or purpose to uh, the podcast. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to uh, promote it to people. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are sort of these categories of podcasts that are the host um, sort of functioning as like a platform for others to come on the show and talk about whatever it is they have to say, and then the host is sort of just a moderator. And, you know, that's kind of the, the Joe Rogan uh, model of podcasting. Um, I don't think I'm going to do that, mainly because I don't know anyone who would come on the podcast who would be interesting to talk to. I know a lot of interesting people, um, but I don't know that I'd be able to convince them to record their thoughts in audio form alongside me in my inane ramblings. Um, but you know, the things that I, uh, my, my daily concerns or things that I have maybe a little more context for a little more information about that might be interesting in the rest of the world. Um, I think that will be more the focus of the podcast moving forward. So, um, this will be things like, you know, technology, science fiction, um, sort of the, the interesting uh, convergence of reality and science fiction that we're living through, um, which just feels like at an accelerating pace, uh, the, the world of SFNL concerns is collapsing. Um, and uh, it, it almost requires us to be more ambitious with our science fictional um, speculations, uh, to keep up with reality, um, because things have just gotten so weird. That being said, um, the first thing that I think I want to talk about in what is being dubiously termed the second season of Desiderata, um, I want to talk briefly about, uh, section 230. And, um, in particular, I want to refute the uh, more right, right-leaning talking point that Section Two Hundred and Thirty should be completely repealed. Um, that that it represents a, a shield for the tech giants um, to legally continue their um, 
purging of conservative voices on various platforms, um, and that it's it's used essentially as a legal shield for uh, censorship and and First Amendment violations. Uh, I I am very sympathetic to the cause of um, preventing this kind of censorship and and limitations on conversations or topics or content that can be posted on any of these massive platforms solely on the basis of a, a political uh, bent. Um, I really dislike and, and am, am frightened by the rise of this term misinformation. I feel that this is very clearly a propagandistic term. And it has some very serious epistemological definition problems because uh, information, <laughs> your view on a subject, um, is, is not either correct or incorrect. Um, there, is a, there is an objective uh, reality substrate that lies somewhere, somewhere out there. Um, someone knows, for example, the truth about where the coronavirus came from and, um, whether it was in a lab, whether it was being worked on in a lab, but it was discovered in the wild, whether it was totally discovered in the wild. And this is all just, uh, hubbub or propaganda to confuse everyone or, you know, whether it was being tinkered with in a lab, but they discovered it in a cave with bats or something. No, uh, nobody knows this publicly, um, but someone knows the truth. There is a truth somewhere out there. Um, the truth is out there. That's the old X-Files slogan. Uh, yes, indeed. We, we do seem to be living in a version of the X-Files uh, these days. Uh, but yes, so, so there is an objective reality substrate uh, that if we had enough information, we could get at that reality. We could dig through you know, the propaganda, the, the, the political concerns, um, uh, and, and get at the truth. But we don't have it publicly available. There, those of us who are mere mortals simply simply don't have that information. And so uh, when when you're talking about a category of misinformation, uh, well, this requires that that we know what the real information is um, and not just what you know the official government story, but like something objectively measurable and verifiable by anyone. Um, I would say something like saying that the earth is flat is misinformation because uh, a Greek guy with a stick uh, 3,000 years ago measured the circumference of the earth and determined that it was round. Um, People have known that it is round for many thousands of years and uh, anyone who has flown on a plane, any child with a stick can prove that the earth is round. It is not flat. So claiming that the earth is flat 
or has some other weird shape uh, is misinformation um, in the sense that there is an objective reality that's relatively easy to come by, uh, meaning that the, the, the direct experience of that reality can be verified. We can go experience it ourselves and uh, check it out for ourselves. But when it comes to political speech, um, there, there is no objective reality for many of these topics. Um, something like tax policy. I mean, there's not a lot of policy wonks left in Washington, but if there were, uh, would YouTube be censoring, uh, those who post about tax policies that, that the YouTube parent company does not agree with? Um, what is the best tax policy? Well, this is, this is not a simple subject that has a, you know, a, a verifiable, um, you know, physical, measurable, uh, objective truth to it. Um, there simply is no way to get at, um, something like that for political issues. So I find this term misinformation very troubling. Um, and I, I only go on this, this rant a bit to establish my bona fides to the, uh, conservatives, I guess, that, that will listen to this and say, oh, Robert, you're just a troll for the, for the left, and you're, you're a secret Democrat. Um, really not. Uh, I'm really not. But, um, I do not think that, uh, in the interest of preventing censorship using this dubious misinformation category. I do not think that, uh, removing section 230 will actually help anyone. Um, it will not prevent censorship and it will not, uh, serve the best interests of, uh, political discourse for either side of the aisle, no matter which party you feel aligned to, no matter what your political persuasion, you do not want Section 230 removed. And I will explain that in some detail after the break. So why do I think Section 230 is important and you should not want to remove it if you care about First Amendment issues and protecting against censorship online. Here is my argument. Your appeal 230 suddenly, yes, you can sue over uh, content or removal or anything like that on... YouTube or Reddit um, or Twitter, what have you, um, there probably would be no basis for things like the uh, fact checker takedown orders, the gag orders that are, are being clearly being secretly uh, or not so secretly enacted by platforms like Twitter. But here's my argument for why you want to keep things the way they are. 
because it could get a whole lot worse. Uh, Section 230 uh, protects uh, an internet entity, a website, from being liable for the content on their sites, right? So uh, think about it this way. Uh, If we were liable for the content on the sites, if if an internet provider was liable for it, um, who who would ensure that that uh, was being enforced? You know, who would be responsible? How would it how would it actually work in practice? Uh, well, you'd need to have um, you know some kind of moderation team, um, which you know many of these platforms have in, in, to some degree. Um, but you you'd need to have a, a vast moderation team. You'd need to have you need to restructure the platform. Um, to ensure that when you post something on Twitter, that it's not infringing on any copyrights, that it's not breaking any laws, um, you know, it, it, going across uh, national borders becomes even trickier um, uh, because they may have their own sorts of uh, provisions enacted. Um, so, you know, I don't. What happens if somebody in you know Honduras posts something on? Uh, on a server in the U.S., uh, which uh, is maybe legal in Honduras, but um, in the United States it's illegal. Do we enforce the United States copyright claims and so forth for every uh, post on the internet? Um, But here's my real argument. My real argument for why we should just leave things the way they are. Because the cost of actually uh, operating under a world without 230 is really, really high for the websites, for the, the uh, providers of the content uh, platforms. And that cost effectively would function as regulatory capture. Basically, you just have a, re- a new regulation on top of all the existing regulations uh, that would ensure that only a company as well-funded and massive as Google or Facebook could possibly operate online. So you kill off all of these startups that just create a product, let people post whatever they want, let people send whatever content they want around. And if a company, if uh, Disney or somebody decides to, to sue and say, um, hey, you know, Tumblr, you're posting uh, clips from our copyrighted Lion King uh, movie. Uh, we are suing you because uh, Section 230 is gone, and so you are no longer protected, uh, legally shielded from things that your users post. So now Tumblr uh, then in order to avoid the, uh, the risk uh, of being sued into oblivion by every corporation in the United States, uh, they, they now have to enact a broad monitoring uh, moderation team. And uh, they may even have to have you know, staged posts where you have 
a team of people in the Philippines actually looking at every post to make sure it doesn't have copyrighted material before you allow it to be posted online. So it would completely change the dynamic of what we expect online, where you post something, uh, even if it's copyrighted material, you know, eventually there might be a takedown notice or something. But if you posted some copyrighted material on Twitter, Twitter isn't going to get sued by the copyright holder. Uh, because it's section 230, you're, you, the user, are the one who posted it. So Twitter's not responsible for that. That's how the internet works. And that's how startups are, are able to function. Um, it, well, you know, particularly in the media landscape. Um, you know, something like Twitter would never get off the ground if... Uh, you know, back in 2009, 2008, whenever they started up, uh, they would never have gotten off the ground uh, if they were required to sanitize everything that everyone posts. That would require so much capital and uh, just an enormous moderation team, um, likely an, an overseas, offshored uh, content moderation uh, operations similar to what Facebook has, but at a much, much larger scale. And effectively, the only kinds of companies that could operate in this environment would be the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. So now that those platforms already exist and are huge, uh, I don't think they particularly care if you take away 230. Because Facebook and Google can afford the armies of lawyers and moderation people uh, to meet whatever regulatory compliance they need. They have so much money and there's so much riding on those companies uh, that they'll they'll throw any anything at it to get past the regulatory burden placed on the website operators. Your little startup with three employees uh, operating out of uh, someone's basement, they absolutely cannot afford that. And, uh, of course, all of the innovation, uh, online and with web-based tools and, and many other, uh, uh, components of the tech world, uh, it comes from these small teams. It comes from these startups that, that take a big risk. Uh, and if you heap even more risk on them by making them responsible for literally everything posted on their platform, they could be sued for anything that goes on, you know, on their platform that's not been sanitized and run past the regulators, uh, then they're just going to die and there will be no innovation in the future. Uh, it will ensure that if you hate Facebook and you hate Google, if you think that they're a bunch of jerks and you don't like the way they run their business model, um, you don't like the, uh, political censorship that they have engaged in, uh, your best bet to combat that is, uh, a competitor an an alternative. If there are no alternatives, then they can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter what the, the law says. If, if Google and Facebook are the only entities that can possibly afford to operate a website. Uh, it, it'll be just like America Online 
where nobody goes into the web. Nobody goes, nobody navigates away from their Facebook. Uh, they, they do everything through Facebook. They get their messaging, their, their emailing, they get their, uh, purchasing products. They buy tickets. They buy, you know, back in the late nineties, this is how the internet was. It was, you know, everything went through these portals, AOL or CompuServe, these other things. So the internet's going to be better for anyone who cares about free speech and plurality of opinion. Um, if we have lots and lots of smaller fiefdoms in the tech world instead of these massive zaibatsus that uh, own 90% of the landscape. So that's all I have to say. Uh, I think uh, if you're conservative and you're concerned about Facebook and Google and Twitter and these other media conglomerates... Uh, acting as political actors, you don't want to get rid of Section 230. Uh, it's the thing that's allowing competitors to come and unseat those companies eventually. And I do believe that will happen. Um, you know, there was a time when some of the big companies of yore were considered the unquestioning masters of their domain that would never be unseated. You know, there was a time when it was only Microsoft. It was Microsoft or Oracle. Um, and there's lots and lots of competitors now. And, and so the, the, the situation isn't uh, so dire that we need to gamble, uh, play Russian roulette with uh, the future of the internet over this um, Anyways, that's all I have to say. Okay, I think that's going to be it for the first episode of, I guess, season two. And um, I'm probably going to follow this one up pretty quickly with another, um, some things I want to talk about. Uh, not uh, strictly political related things, but um, just kind of general uh, social issues, I guess. Um, so yeah, uh, take it easy out there, you guys. Uh, don't, uh, go too crazy and, uh, you know, try to, try to moderate your media usage. I think that's my, my best, uh, advice that I can offer to anyone is the more media you consume, the crazier you're going to get, whatever your political persuasion is. Uh, there's just, there's not enough news really to fill a 24-hour news cycle, and especially with things like coronavirus and vaccines, and uh, there's a lot of complicated science and complicated uh, investigations going on with all of that, and it's really not the sort of thing you need to get, you know, push notifications about you are, are probably not going to uh, miss if there's some big discovery. Um, I really uh, believe strongly that you can pretty much learn everything you need to know about uh, what's going on in, uh, you know, approximately 10 minutes of reading uh, a, a decent newspaper like 
I like the Wall Street Journal. Um, but, you know, pick pick one that you like. Um, I think the, uh, the alternative media has uh, some great options, but I think uh, it sort of also turns into the same problem as the CNN... Um, the CNNs of the world where, uh, the news cycle is so long on these sites that, um, people, uh, you know, the, the media will, will, you have to kind of dice, dice up the real news and spin it different directions and, and throw in, you know, speculations and, uh, supposed experts that will weigh in, you know, bring in this guy from this university and this guy from, you know, India to, to comment on it. And, oh, well, what's the racial justice angle of it? And, uh, you guys, the, the real news, the real news is quite boring. Um, there's, there's not that much news really going on, um, in a given day. You can get everything you need to know in certainly less than 30 minutes of reading. Um, also read, don't look at videos, don't listen to phony documentaries, just read, just read an article. Like I said, 30 minutes, 30 minutes tops, and then you got to get on with your day. Do something, even if it's just cleaning the house. So that's all I got to say. I'm going to sign off for now and I'll see you guys on the next episode.